The Huskies look to take their frustrations from two home losses to top 10 teams, Oregon and Utah. Husky fans, coaches, and players haven't found comfort in them being close losses. This is Fourth and Inches, a Husky podcast. I'm Trevor. I'm Jake. And we're like Miguel and Dante. Oh, my gosh. Miguel and Dante. Um, Man, I don't know. Your kids watch it. I guarantee it. My kids... Is it from Coco? Yeah. It's from Coco. It <laughs> yeah, I got it. <laughs> it took me long enough, but I got it. That's a good duo. I like Coco. Today's episode of Fourth and Inch of the Husky Podcast is brought to you by VintageBrand.com. Vintage Brand is a sports apparel and gift brand celebrating the rich history of American sporting culture. Their collection includes 10,000 digitally restored authentic vintage works of art reproduced on apparel, wall art, koozies, drinkware, and more. All November long, they're giving away daily $100 promo codes for new email subscribers. Relive your favorite vintage UW logos, Husky Stadium moments, and Rose Bowls. Use promo code HUSKY19 to get 20% off all products through the end of the year. More details at the end of the show on how one lucky listener can win something from VintageBrand.com. I actually just was on Vintage Brand earlier today. I, I used the promo code and I picked up a aluminum wall art for my uh, for my dad for Christmas uh, of the year that he was born, the Rose Bowl that they were in, and it's it's amazing. I I love their I love their their apparel. I think that they have a really unique, cool idea going. And for any sports fan that has uh, sports memorabilia love and the room to put it in a man cave or wherever you want to put it. It's a phenomenal place to get your gear. Unranked Washington heads down to Corvallis to take on a resurgent Oregon State program and face a team that's led by ex-Husky offensive coordinator Jonathan Smith. Jonathan Smith took over the team in disarray. Coach Anderson quit during the 2017 season. In just his second year, Smith has the Beavs at 4-4. Four and four. Some could argue that Smith could have the Beavs bowling if it weren't for some bad luck and close losses against Stanford and Hawaii. This team could be 6-2. and two. Jake, what do you think? This is an Oregon State team that has really turned the corner from being the laughingstock of the Pac-12. Uh, they've won three of their last four games, including wins over Arizona, Cal, UCLA. The Beavs are only two wins away from going bowling for the first time since they won the Hawaii Bowl in 2013. This team has bought into Jonathan Smith, and they're playing extremely hard for him. If they beat us, this will be the marquee win of their year. Uh, to go along with that, man, Washington has been playing much better since the second half of that Arizona game where Jacob Eason, from all reports, say that he had a spirited conversation with his offense and with his team. And we've really seen the identity and the effectiveness of the offensive side of the football greatly improve to where they were able to hang with two top 10 teams. The two best defenses in the Pac-12. So now they're heading to Corvallis to play a defense that, you know, isn't one of the top teams in the Pac-12. So, Jake, kind of what are your thoughts on what Washington has to do on the offensive side to be successful on Friday night? Yeah, man. Washington looks to take advantage of a poor Oregon State defense. The Beavers are ninth in the conference in points allowed. Not very good. They've let up quite a few points. If we look at Oregon State's defense against Utah's defense in different stat categories, there's a huge separation between the two defenses. Washington was able to move the ball against Utah at least for a half. Uh, Washington was also able to move the ball against Oregon. They were able to put points up against both of those defense, which you had previously just mentioned that those were the two best defenses in the, in the Pac-12. So I really think that we should be able to move the ball extremely well against them and put points on the board. We've had, we've had trouble scoring in the red zone. I don't think you're going to see that this game. Looking a little bit deeper into the difference between Utah and Oregon State's defense, the one thing that Oregon State does a little bit better than Utah is QB pressure. 
Utah only has 18 sacks on the year, while Oregon State has 25. So they do get after the quarterback. But that's kind of where their defense stops uh, the production. Utah has 11 interceptions on the year. Oregon State has three. Utah's defense has four fumble recoveries on six forced fumbles. Oregon State has only three fumble recoveries. So they're not a really opportunistic defense, but they're not going to try to go out and get a bunch of turnovers against you like Utah is trying to do. They're just going to try to keep you out of the end zone in less than a minute from the start of a drive. So, Jake, what do you think that is going to be the major keys for this Washington offense to be able to move the ball against this Oregon defense? Is it going to be run to set up the pass? Is it going to be pass to set up the run? Where do you think Washington's going to be able to exploit this bottom of the pack ranked defense? You know what I think the Washington offense has to do is they have to keep Jacob Eason upright. Oregon State has a tendency of blitzing their linebackers and they 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 get home with their, their linebacker blitzes. But when they don't get home, that's when their defense gets gets torched. They need the offensive line has been playing the best out of any unit on this offense. And they need to continue those ways because they need to keep Easton upright and then they, they need to make gaping holes for that running game to run through. And if they do that, they're going to handle that defense no problem. Do you think that uh, if you were to match Oregon State's defense against Washington's offense, who do you think has the advantage going into this game? Washington's offense all day. I think that we have so much talent on our offense. We've scored on anybody that we've played against. Except for Cal, and that was a kind of a funky situation. We have the ability to – we're not one-sided. We have a phenomenal passing game. We have a phenomenal running game. We can throw two our running backs, and they're elusive. And we have different types of running backs in in general where we have Ahmed who can break containment and run around guys, and we have McGrew who can run through guys. And when Richard Newton is healthy – that's our that's kind of our red zone guy. Is there's just too much offense here to contain, especially for a bottom of the Pac-12 defense. Ladies and gentlemen, that's called a softball question. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, you know, I think that one of the big areas where Washington is overwhelmingly better on that side of the ball is going to be their offensive line. Washington's offensive line in run blocking success when there's a availability of a four yard game is ranked fourth nationally and passer sacks rate Washington is 38th in the country. So this offensive line is performing at a very, very high level. And I don't think Oregon's defensive line has the size or the talent to be able to keep up with this uh, Washington offensive line. Yeah, the one thing that they need to look out for is linebacker blitzes. Their two linebackers blitz a lot. And so you're going to have to know the schemes that Oregon State's bringing defensively when they're blitzing, when they're not blitzing, when they're showing blitz, and when they back off a blitz. The offensive line is going to have its work cut out for them just reading when Oregon State's going to blitz. So I'm wondering if if some of those quick slant guys like uh... – like a Terrell Bynum do for a really, really big game. Yeah. Because if they're going to be vacating that spot, he's been over the last few games the most consistent when it comes to catching those possession balls, uh, accruing a lot of receptions with probably a little bit lower of a yards per reception than other receivers, but the guy who moves the sticks. I think he could be a major player to watch out for this week. Yeah. You know, and, and as much as, We've kind of been harping on uh, Fuller over the last couple of weeks. They throw a lot of slants to him, especially out of the slot. And I think that he could be effective because of his speed that he shows running those slants. If he can make the completion, he can gash that defense for a long play off of a slant. And that's kind of where this offense has been struggling is off of those slants. Receivers have been dropping balls. But when they do catch them, they have the ability to make guys miss and torch defenses for long games. If Washington wants to be successful, it's going to fall on Easton's back on this game. He is the one that came out at halftime and rallied the troops in the locker room. We are 
we've lost two games in a row to two very good te- two top 10 teams and he needs to bear the load this week he needs to come out and he needs to play on fire he kind of needs to have that BYU game where that one interception that he threw was a heat check because he had been hitting windows that were so tight and he was making those completions. He needs to play like that where he is absolutely on fire and carries this team to a big time win. We need to not just score on this defense. We need to beat this defense up and we need to score at will against them. Tell me about what you think about the our defense versus their offense. This Oregon state offense is very, very prolific. They've been able to put up massive numbers against most of the teams that they've played against. This is led by, of course, 17-year senior Jake Luton, who has almost 1,900 yards on the year with 19 touchdowns and just one interception. Husky fans might remember Jake Luton before he was a Beave. He was with the University of Idaho and played against Washington a few years ago. Uh, so this is actually just his second senior season. Okay. He was a grad transfer from, from the University of Idaho he came to Oregon State and had a pretty nasty back injury that I thought would probably end his career. He got a medical red shirt, was able to come back, and he's been having a really under-the-radar fantastic season. The media hasn't quite caught up to the fact that Oregon State is a, is a rising and a, a decent program, and their offense has been on display. However, when they got to the big stage uh, in a home game against Utah – They struggled to get into the end zone against a really, really physical defense. They did struggle. So I think if Washington is able to be physical with this team, they're going to be able to to, uh, capitalize on that. However, running back combination, Jamar Jefferson and Artavis Pierce are arguably the two best two-headed running back combination in the Pac-12. Uh, if they're not the best, they're definitely up there in that conversation among the best. Uh, Jamar Jefferson has been hurt for a lot of the year, but came back fully healthy last week and had a great game against Arizona. Uh, Artavis Pierce picked up where he left off. Uh, combined, they have, a, they have over 1,000 yards on the season. Uh, this team runs through the running backs, and they've been able to score a lot of points against teams that are pretty good, like Oklahoma State using their running backs. Yeah, between the two, they have 10 touchdowns. You know, Jamar Jefferson, you said he's missed most of the year, and he already has four touchdowns. Oregon State has traditionally had really, really good running backs. Yeah. And they just keep – it seems like whenever a a Beavers team is good, they have a really, really good running back. Yeah. So – as this program keeps progressing to the point to where they're relevant again, it's going to be on the backs of Jamar Jefferson and Artavis Pierce. Yeah. And then on the outside, the, the one receiver you got to watch out for is Isaiah Hodgins. He's six foot four. Um, I'm not sure how he ended up at Oregon state, but of Luton's 1900 yards, he has 46% of those. Whoa. Yards. Yeah. Uh, he has 600 more receiving yards than the next highest second on the team is champ flemings he's a five foot five burner but that just goes to show you how much this offense relies on one guy he's dynamic he strikes the fear of god in in everybody that plays against him he's only had more less than 50 yards in one game so and that's with teams keying on him the guy is still able to get open and jake luton has such a familiarity and trust in this guy that they're able to be really, really effective in games even when people know where the ball's going to go, frankly. Now, what I'm excited to watch is Keith Taylor on this kid because Utah, they did not target Keith Taylor at all, hardly any. I think Weiss, they threw to him the entire game. I think that might be a respect factor of – we know how good you are and how much of a lockdown corner you are. He might not have the interceptions this year, but he's also not giving up a, a lot of big chunk plays, especially now that they're in Pac-12 play. So if they shadow Isaiah Hodgins, Hodgins with Keith Taylor, is that going to be enough 
one-on-one coverage to stop them from throwing his way? Or are we going to have to put Keith Taylor underneath and put uh, Asa over the top? Or, I mean, you're not going to put Miles Bryant over the top because Miles Bryant's such a good playmaker all around the field. He, he gets too many tackles. Do you follow him with a Turner or do you follow him with a Cam Williams, a bigger guy that can cover over the top of him, bigger guy underneath, bigger guy over the top? Do you bracket him? What do you do? You know, are you are you designating two guys just for Isaiah Hodgins? You know, that's a really, really good question. Um, I haven't seen a ton of cornerbacks following receivers this year. I've seen Keith Taylor move inside at times against some of those more heavy running teams. Uh, so you could see that. I'm I'm really not sure. Utah was obviously able to exploit some of the young corners last week. And with such a good offensive mind as Jonathan Smith has, I'm sure he's working on ways to be able to try to isolate Dominic Hampton, Trent Trent McDuffie, or Kyler Gordon. So, you know, that's going to be one of those chess matches that Pete Kukowski and Jimmy Lake are going to have to win to figure out how to keep that keep the ball out of that guy's hands, which has been really hard for, for all the teams that he's played so far. If it were you, would you shadow Hodgins with Keith Taylor or would you keep doing what you were doing? You know, that's a really good question. And it would be based on not just the comfort of Taylor, but it would have to be the comfort of your younger players yeah. as well to be able to play other sides of the well, ball. Okay, so stop beating around the bush and answer the damn question. No. You wouldn't follow him? No. I would just in fear of if you don't follow him and him and Luton get a rhythm and they start catching fire together, tossing all over Trent McDuffie and Kyler Gordon, it might be too late by the time you decide to shadow him with, with Keith Taylor. And they've already got a rhythm and they're, they're torching no matter who's on them. What scares me more even than Isaiah Hodgins is – Oregon State's offensive line, when it comes to success rate, when there's a four yards to gain, they're 13th in the nation. So these guys can run block. And Washington has shown an inability at times to be able to stop the run unless they sell out like they did with Utah. But that left our secondary kind of on an island, and Utah was able to take advantage of that. That's what makes me nervous about Luton and Hodgins. Worst case scenario, you are not big up in the second half. And Oregon State has the ability to keep running on you. Right. Best case scenario, you're up big and they have to start hucking the ball around the field. And that kind of goes with the O-line's deficiencies with Oregon State. They are 72nd. That's the bottom half of FBS teams when it comes to their sack rate. Now, is that because in games, Oregon State has been down? Maybe. Is it because Jake Luton could hold on to the ball for too long? That could be a possibility as well. But 70 seconds is something UW should be able to take advantage of. You would think it's probably a combination of both. Because Luton doesn't like to throw into tight spaces, that's why he doesn't have a whole lot of interceptions. So he'll take mm-hmm. a sack instead of getting rid of the ball and putting it in hairy situations. Well, yeah, with the 60, you know, he's got a 60% completion percentage. So, you know, is he getting rid of the ball? Maybe. Um, I'm just thinking one guy that I think could have a monster game. And Kayla was pretty bullish on his coming out party a little bit on dog thoughts yesterday is Joe, Joe Tryon could have a monster game. Yeah. She took that from me. I was big on Joe Tryon before she was, but no big deal. Well, <laughs> settle it on the racetrack. <laughs> All right, Husky fans, we got a special treat for you today. We have Mike Yam from the Pac-12 Network on. Uh, Mike, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us about yourself a little bit. Well, guys, I appreciate you having me on. Uh, it's always good when you talk a little Pac-12 football, maybe even a little bit of hoops. Um, but, yeah, I, I've been at Pac-12 Network now for – this is our eighth season, which is kind of crazy to think about this year – when we launched, uh, spent four years with ESPN before that, NBA TV before that. So, um, yeah, it's it's a different way, but uh, of life. But at this point, it's it's home. So, and it's been it's been a really good run. Awesome. Yeah. Can you give us a little bit of insight about your journey from 
the East Coast. Uh, you were born in New Jersey, and now being over here on the West Coast. Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of wild because you were three of us were talking off air, and yeah, I think back. I mean, I, I grew up in northern New Jersey, just outside of New York. I was actually born in the Bronx and went to school, college that is, uh, in the Bronx as well. I went to Fordham. And uh, worked in Midtown uh, Manhattan for a bunch of years at Sirius Radio before it was Sirius XM Radio. And uh, was able to just get some really good opportunities. I, I always tell people I'm, I'm probably the luckiest person you'll ever meet in broadcasting. I just had a bunch of people that took an interest in me for whatever reason and were really good to me. Gave me uh, some opportunities that, that I, I never would have imagined when I was in, in college. And... Uh, yeah, I guess I kind of made the most of them. Um, really enjoyed my time out there, and and uh, it was tough because I was I was at ESPN for for four years, um, and really when I was in school, I, I kind of just always wanted to work at NBA TV. I was a big basketball guy, and a couple years after I graduated, I was fortunate enough to to get a job there. Spent a couple seasons working with those guys, and an opportunity uh, to do television full time came up at ESPN, and and I was able to to grab that and uh, worked on some amazing. Uh, shows with some awesome people that are still lifelong friends and just the opportunities, man. I, I mean, I, I don't think I would have been able to uh, be ready for a job like the one at Pac-12 Network had it not been for my time at ESPN. It was a great learning experience. Um, you're put in situations that you just won't be put in anywhere else. And you, you kind of learned how to do sports television. It was it was really eye-opening and I got to do Sports Center. I got to do NBA shows, uh, college football, college basketball shows. Heck, I even did a little bit of NASCAR. So it was uh, it was a nice little introduction into uh, television full time. And um, you know, I wouldn't trade those four years for anything. And and like I said, it, it really put me in a great spot uh, at Pac-12 Network, where it's it's a lot different than ESPN. But on the West Coast, I, I certainly found out. I would say probably like two weeks into the job that that, you know, East Coast bias thing is a real, real deal growing up oh, yeah, my entire yeah. life on the East Coast. Yeah. I, I was just like, oh, it's just, you know, those West Coasters, what are they talking about? And then when I became a West Coaster, after two weeks, I'm like, oh, man, this is like a real thing. Um, and you know, I feel like we spent eight seasons sort of fighting the good fight and talking about why the Pac-12 and, and certainly the town, this league are as good as, as any other conference, and, and, you know, at the end of the day, guys, you know this, it comes down to winning football games and winning meaningful games, and, you know, quite honestly, the Pac-12 has had some really good teams with a ton of talent, but they haven't been able to win a national championship, the closest thing, obviously, a couple of years ago when, when Washington got into the college football playoff, and that was an amazing uh, trip that I got to be on and, and do some of our shows from Atlanta, but... You know, this year I feel like we're in a good spot, and with two teams in striking distance, I do feel like Oregon and Utah can compete with any team nationally. And then on the basketball side, I, I think this league is loaded. So, um, in my mind, the arrow is pointing up, and, and hopefully one of those teams, Oregon and Utah, is able to take care of business. We get a ridiculously entertaining Pac-12 championship game and, and potentially a trip to the CFB. As far as Utah and Oregon, what has to happen for them to make the, the college football playoff? Do they both have to win out and meet each other in the uh, Pac-12 championship game and the winner moves to the college football playoff with some luck? Or could, say, Oregon lose a game in between now and the college football playoff, and would they still be good enough if Utah beat them to propel Utah to the college football playoff? Yeah, I don't think either one of these teams will. One, there's never been a two-loss team. And if there's ever going to be a two-loss team, guys, I just spent some a couple minutes there talking about that East Coast bias. It ain't coming from a West Coast squad. Um, it's not going to come right. from the Pac-12. That's just kind of the reality of the situation. You'll probably see, you know, an SEC team or a Big Ten team be that first to crack it. But I don't think, you know, in the current format that's that's ever going to happen. I think we're going to get enough you know, either undefeated, a combination of, of four undefeateds or, or one-loss teams that would be in the mix before two-loss squad. So um, to answer your question, I think it's both teams winning out and getting to a championship game. I, I think Oregon right now has got a slightly stronger case than Utah based off of body of work. But you remember that, that college football playoff committee, I think they do a really nice job over the years. But the job is not to pick the four most deserving teams. It's to pick the four best teams. And there is a distinction um, from doing that max selection like I did it a couple of years ago. There is a, there is a difference. And that committee, 
every single one of those members weights different metrics differently according to their personal preference. So, you know, I might look at a team like Alabama and say that, you know, their their strength of schedule among Power 5 uh, schools is 65 out of 65, and that to me is meaningful. Um, you know, where someone else might just say, well, look at the talent. They got one of the best players in the country in Tua, and, um, you know, traditionally with Nick Saban teams, they've had a ton of success, and that might be enough to, to sway it if it's close. But in my mind, I still look at Oregon and Utah. I think if you look at the eye test, Utah is as good as any team physically. You know, the beauty of that Pac-12 championship game, guys, is, is you're going to see NFL talent on, on both sides of, of the field. Um, that game is just going to be littered with Sunday dudes. So, in my mind, it's it's two teams that absolutely deserve to get there. And I'll say this. If Oregon goes and wins out and they're a Pac-12 champion, and that one loss comes against uh, an SEC opponent, and I do think it's a good team. Guys, they outplayed Auburn. They, they were leading that entire game up until, you know, nine seconds to play. And this is a different offense now. I mean, they had their top three wide receivers. We didn't even play in that football game. Like, to me, I look at Oregon's offense right now and compare it to what we've had, uh, what we've seen from them in, in week number one. Like, it's night and day. Uh, Jawan Johnson's come on strong. Mike Pittman's come on strong. I, I just – you can't play the injury thing uh, for some teams and, and not do it for all the teams. So, uh, in my mind, there's no doubt that, that both of those teams, if they're a 12-1 and one, Pac-12 champion that plays nine conference games, uh, that's insane to me that, 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 would, that one of those teams would be on the outside looking in. You know, that's an interesting take. Uh, we have LSU and Alabama that are obviously going to play each other, so one of those guys is going to have a one yeah. loss. Uh, sure. One of the things that Yogi Roth brought up with you guys was the, the, the selection committee is still looking at the logo. It's not blind. Um, yeah. Do you get worried about, let's say, LSU beats Alabama, uh, and then they go on uh, to be, you know, have that one loss, and so we have Oregon and Alabama possibly looking to get into that number four spot. Do you see any issues with Oregon, uh, Oregon's re- Oregon's resume to be able to put them over yeah. the top there, or do you think the name recognition of that crimson color is going to take away from from the University of Oregon? Well, a couple things here. One, I would like to think that the committee uh, does their homework and they're watching the games, right? So sure. one of the things that really – when I did the, the mock selection, I brought this up, and I've done it for college football for the playoff, and I've done it for the NCAA tournament. And I brought this up in the room with the football guys because I had done the, turn, the NCAA tournament one first. What struck me as interesting and different was the fact that they don't do blind resumes. They do do that during the college basketball selection. And on the football side, they don't. And to me, it it does create a little bit of doubt. Now, I think if you were an Oregon fan, you're sitting there, or a Utah fan for that matter, you're sitting there going, look, we want LSU to win, you want a loss for Alabama, and you definitely want Tua playing in that football game because the last thing you want is is Alabama to say that they didn't have their starting quarterback for that game. Now, the reason why I think LSU, you want them to win, is because if LSU loses to Alabama, they won't play in the SEC championship game. To be completely honest, their resume and body of work is better than Oregon and Utah's with their wins. And I think that's why if you're a Pac-12 fan, you have to be sitting there and you do not want to – like a 12-1 and Oregon or Utah team coming out of the Pac-12 conference, yeah, like that's nasty. But the full season's worth of work for LSU, despite the fact that they won't be an SEC champion, is still pretty good. They've got some really impressive wins on their schedule. So, to me, you want LSU winning that football game. But you're right. I mean, if it's Alabama and Oregon – sitting there in that room where it's Alabama, Oregon, and Utah, yeah, like that would that would worry me um, as as a fan for sure. But I, I, I just hope that the committee would sit there and do the work, and you hope that guys like Ronnie Locke, who certainly have ties to the Pac-12 conference, will be able to, and I won't say advocate, but tell the truth about what's happening here. Um, and at some point, you'd like to think that, that the SEC and the team like Alabama would just get a ding for, for an eight-conference game schedule and not really playing anyone in, in non-conference play. I'm with you on that, man. I just, 
I wish that they would go uniform. And Jake and I have had this conversation a lot. And I think where I land on that is I would love to see all teams go to a nine-conference schedule because, frankly, it's one more week where you're not scheduling an easy win, and therefore you have more enjoyable weeks of quality football games. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's the one thing. Look, I mean, scheduling is really tough because that's that's a whole other um, situation when you when you're sitting in that that committee room. And David Shaw, we've had conversations about this over the years, and he's the first one to to tell you it's not apples and apples. I mean, it is really hard to try to compare teams that have um, that are are in leagues that are playing eight versus nine conference games. Like it's just becoming increasingly more difficult. You're baking losses into your conference just because of the extra game, six extra losses that your league is going to suffer. Um, there's a reason why you don't see teams run the table, which, by the way, if Oregon does that, that's another feather in their cap. For a team that's 12-1, and Pac-12 champion, lose their week one game without their top three wide receivers with nine seconds to play, and they just ran the table in, in the Pac-12 conference, which does not happen, to me, that's that's just another reason for for them being in that conversation if it's them or or Alabama. But you're right, the scheduling absolutely is is something that that I think we're all keeping a close eye on. Awesome. Well, and, and the college football playoff is kind of where it's seated right now. The top the top sixteen seeds are there's multiple in the same conference. Kind of set up for. Oregon and Utah because the top six is kind of littered with teams from the same conference outside of Clemson. You have Alabama, you have LSU, and you have Georgia up there. And then you have two teams from the Big Ten with Ohio State and Penn State. So at some point, those teams are going to have to play each other and hopefully knock each other out of that that playoff picture because as far as I've, I've always heard, it's better to lose early, which is what Oregon did, correct? Agreed, yeah. The top four is going to be drastically different because those SEC and Big Ten teams are, are playing each other, right? So if I'm if I'm Clemson and I'm Dabble, I'm going, well, I'm golden here. I think it just becomes, you know, let's just say two of those teams stay in. Then you're looking at and really having a conversation about, you know, a, a Georgia squad, a Clemson team, an Oregon slash Utah team. Um, you know, I've always been a big advocate of expanding to eight. I'll tell you what, if for all the negative conversations that are happening about the Pac-12, I mean, hell, if it's an eight-game conference uh, or, excuse me, an eight-team playoff, Big 12 is on the outside looking in. Oklahoma's sitting at number nine right now. So, to me, it's um, there's no doubt there's going to be a shakeup over the next couple weeks. There's still plenty of football to be played here. Uh, Mike, who do you see of the lower seeds that you think is poised to be able to make a giant push up? Uh, I think the lowest seed to get in was uh, Ohio State was a 13 Ohio in the State, original yeah. ranking. Um, so yeah, you, you know it's kind of wild that year. They lost to. You know what? It's a good question. Um, I, I, that Ohio State team, by the way, they lost in week two to Virginia Tech, and they were able to rebound, which is why I think if you are, um, if you're Oregon, you're feeling somewhat confident. And not for nothing, man, I'd be feeling the same way if I was if I was Utah as well. I mean, their one blemish is is a USC team at the Coliseum. Like, I think SC, even though people are looking at their, their wins and losses, I, I think in that committee room, there's still a hell of a lot of respect for the talent that's on that squad. Um, but as far as the team, like Oklahoma maybe is one of those teams that, that's there. I just think the way it's setting up right now, with the Big 12 being as far back as they are, um, you're, you're looking at a Big Ten, um, a Big Ten champion, an SEC champion, um, the ACC champ, assuming it's Clemson. And it's kind of, I think it's two or three teams fighting maybe the SEC loser um, and a Pac-12 team that's sitting there really competing for that final spot. I'll say this, man, like I don't, you know, I know that there's some concern right now maybe in Seattle. I, I tweeted something about Utah uh, off of the win and someone I mean, not for nothing, man. I, I get the passion. I was just up in Seattle. We were doing our road show there, our Pac-12 network. I had someone treat me. Chris Peterson's seat is warm. I'm thinking to myself, you guys are crazy. I was like, man, I huh. take Chris Peterson as my head coach, you know, 10 times out of 10. Um, yeah. it's right. just, I think it's just one of those years where, you know, trying to replace the talent on defense is really hard. And I, I just think this season, Utah and Oregon just happen to be a better football team than they are. 
And kind of kind of branching off on that point, where do you see the Washington program going forward? They're going to be fine. You're I'm not. not concerned about them. Look, like I said before, give me Chris Peterson all day, every day. Um, you know, I still think we've seen some strides that they've made on the defensive side. I was in there uh, as watching practice, and at that point we didn't know if it was going to be Singer or Houston. It was part of the reason why I chose to go to Seattle in August because I wanted to see those two guys. And I was sitting with Brock Hewitt, who was actually the same day he happened to be there, watching practice and I turned to him and I said, man, you've been here for a really long time. You remember it ever being this big in the trenches here. And he said, that was like the one thing that Chris Peterson, you could tell has been kind of a focal point on signing day, which is right around the corner here. But there, I think they had learned after the Alabama loss. Like I didn't look at Washington and say they can't compete with Alabama. That was not the case. The problem is there's like two or three teams in the country, maybe four that just have this insane depth uh, to their rosters. And, and look, Alabama is one of those teams. Clemson's one of those teams. And in 2016, Washington just wasn't one of those squads. So I think they continue to build in the right direction. Um, but I, I, I'm not concerned at all about the, the state of this program or where they go. So one more quick question I got for you, Mike, before we get to sure. let you get out of here. Um, uh, just, just to kind of, just a quick breeze through what I see here. I see that, um, you're a member of the Alzheimer's Association of New York. Uh, I was a caregiver for people with Alzheimer's for four years in college. Um, I'm just wondering where that connection came from for you. Yeah, you know, my, my best friend, uh, probably from like the day that I was born, he's the person that, that took me home, uh, and drove me home was my grandfather. And, uh, He's the biggest sports fan that, that I had ever known. He's the person who got me into sports. He used to go to all my games when I was a kid and, uh, unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago and, and was dealing with Alzheimer's and, and as you have seen firsthand, just an absolutely insidious disease that is just absolutely horrific. Um, and, and it's, it's one of those things where for as tough as it is on the person who's actually suffering from the disease, it's like, it, it's unique in, in that it has such a dramatic effect on everyone that's doing the caregiving and their family members and their friends. And, uh, yeah, it was, um, just, it was, it was awful. I mean, just kind of being around, uh, you know, it kind of got to the point and this is just kind of what happens with that disease. You know, I'd go see my grandfather, um, when I was working at ESPN at the time, he was living with my grandmother and she was still taking care of him. We had, you know, kind of nurses aides that would come by. It got got to be too much. And, um, you know, her quality of life started to diminish. So, you know, it's a tough choice that I think a lot of families have to make. And, um, you know, my grandfather, when he was still kind of with it, had said to my mom, Hey, you know, if it kind of gets to that point, just put me in the veterans home. And, and that's what he did. And I would go down and I'd take my grandmother's food shop and then I'd head over to see him. And, you know, it was sad because, you know, God, I, I still remember that first time, uh, when I got my uh, acceptance offer to, or I accepted the offer at ESPN, that was one of the coolest moments probably in my life. And I just remember driving to my grandparents and I was screaming, like I was pumped. I mean, I was going to be, you know, a sports center anchor and I was going to ESPN. And I just think back to those moments and my grandfather, like he was, he, he was smiling because I was happy, but it was, he didn't, he didn't understand what was happening. So, um, you know, I just uh, it's like the one thing I just kind of wish you'd be able to see kind of how the, the, the sports career ended up for me, just knowing how big of a sports fan he was. But that was the, the connection to the disease. And, and uh, I know it's really tough for anyone who's a caregiver, man. Those those folks are, are real angels. I know my, my mom, my grandmother and, and just kind of all the people you know, that do it professionally. It, it is a it is a daunting task. That's, um, you know, it's a huge responsibility. And um you know, the patience that you have to have to do that job, man, it is, it's unlike anything. So I uh, appreciate you actually um, spending some of your days, uh, you know, with, with people suffering from the disease. That's, that's pretty awesome to hear. You're welcome. You know, it's, it's one of those things that I, I think that a lot more people are, are familiar with it because of loved ones. Um, but it's really one of those things that not a lot of people talk about. And it did allow me to kind of connect to, to some other things that were going on, um, at least personally. So, uh, but definitely always keep tabs on, on, on the research and the things that are happening around the disease. Awesome. Well, Mike, we really appreciate it. Why don't you go ahead and, and send out how people can follow you and, 
and where you exist online and, and even in the network. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, Pac-12 Network, for sure. I feel like I, I have, like, a, a mini cot in our uh, our <laughs> green room where we watch the game so I can sleep in there. And it's going to get busy with hoops now officially underway. But uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, uh, the Twitter and Instagram handles are the same, Mike underscore Yam. We put out Yogi and I, who's one of my best friends, uh, Yogi Roth, who I know you made reference to before. The two of us are always pumping out a ton of content. Um and you're always posting on, on Instagram and, and, you know, looking for the retweets on Twitter just to kind of get uh, some of the stuff out there as well. And, and then on Facebook, just Mike Yam. So um, always posting there and, and uh, always love hearing from a lot of the fans. One of the cool things that we've done the last two years is be on the road. And for the first uh, six years of the network, I felt like I was handcuffed to the chair. And Yogi would always tell me that people were watching. And I didn't believe it until I actually hit the road and started to meet a lot of the fans uh, in the various cities in the footprint. And it's it's awesome to interact with everyone. I always encourage people, if if you know we're going to be in town, man, stop by the set and say hello. Because I, I love talking to everyone that, that's uh, supporting the conference and supporting their teams and, and certainly watching the stuff that we're doing on Pac-12 Network. All right, Jake, you ready to get into some picks? Unfortunately. <laughs> so last week I was 2-2. Two and two. Jake, do you want to guess what you were? 0-4. Oh no, you got one. You were one I got three, one. buddy. Okay. So on the year, I am twenty six and twenty nine. Jake, you are sixteen and thirty eight. <laughs> uh, I hope everybody, every one of our listeners, is smart enough to realize not to go with my picks. <laughs> uh, I think we're getting there. Okay. Good. Um. All right. So we got. Four. We're going to save UW till the end. We'll kind of give our takes on it, and uh, we'll go from there. So first, we have Stanford heading to Boulder to take on the Buffs. Stanford is a three-point favorite. Jake, what do you got? Man, both of these teams just baffle me. Um, I'm just going to take Stanford to cover. Okay, I did as well. Um, Steven Montez is absolutely regressed, man. This team it is really interesting what the guys on the read option said about LaVisca Chenault and the most important attribute you have is availability and that dude just cannot stay healthy. Yeah, for sure. Next we got Southern Cal headed to ASU. Uh, ASU is a two point favorite. Boy, Southern Cal sure did throw me for a loop. They, they looked bad. Oh yeah. And it's funny because before halftime, they just with 20 seconds left, they kick it deep. The, uh, Oregon is able to take it back to the house, and yeah. that was that was the turning point. And those guys just—it really looked kind of like they quit. They quit, yeah. They quit on Clay. I think, yeah. I, I don't, I don't know, Did man. You... Yeah, Jake, what do you think? Uh, you know, as much as SC quit on Clay Hilton last week, I'm going to pick them to uh, cover, and I'm actually going to pick them to win. I mean, your guess is as good as mine with these two teams. Uh, Arizona State's definitely taking a step back. I'm I'm counting on the bye week uh, and Herm to be able to get in there and get some things turned around. So uh, I guess we're going to see this one, like most Pac-12 games, is an absolute crapshoot. Next, we got the Cougs traveling to Cal to take on the Bears. Washington State is a seven-and-a-half-point favorite. Jake, what do you got? I'm going to take Wazoo just because I think Cal's the reeling, man. They just they just blew it against Cal or against Oregon State. I think I think they're gonna they're probably gonna start tanking pretty hard. I agree with you. Losing two quarterbacks in an offense that was not that great to begin with is just too much for this Cal offense to be able to recover from. And Washington State's going to be able to put up some points on this Cal defense. So I don't see a way for them to be able to score enough to beat Washington State. Yeah, for sure. And I'm happy seven and a half is fine. Last up, we got Washington at Oregon State. Washington is a 10-point favorite. Jake, what do you got? Uh, I think they're going to score quite a few points on these guys, and I think our defense is going to lock them down pretty good. I picked Washington to win. Picked Washington to win 31-14. to 14. Awesome. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I think that Oregon State's going to be able to move the ball a little bit, but I think this Washington defense is going to steamroll Oregon State. Um, Washington doesn't have as a good defense as Utah, but they do have talent. And we've seen Oregon State 
when they go up against a talented defense, struggle to put up those massive numbers that Oregon State can against some of the dreck of the Pac-12. So I also think Washington wins big 37-19. And I think that Oregon State's going to score some of their points late, maybe garbage time. We can see Uh, that. Maybe not all 14, but maybe seven of them. I think we'll be up 31. At one point, we'll be up 31-7. They might score a touchdown with a minute or two left. After we're done here, we're going to give you guys a sneak preview of Jake and I's new podcast that's going to be coming out that's going to be covering Washington basketball. Make sure to keep checking si.com backslash college backslash Washington for our other Husky shows like Dog Thoughts and Second Thought. We will consistently put be pushing out new content every week from now on, almost daily. So make sure to check everybody out. And share our show and you'll be automatically entered for a drawing to win $50 credit on vintagebrand.com merchandise. Jake? Are you ready to step onto the hardwood? Yeah, absolutely, Trev. Let's talk basketball, bud. Awesome. So this is our brand new podcast that we're partnering with SI. Uh, We're going to be having Husky legends on. We're going to be having members of the media come on, bracketologists to talk about what's going on with our Husky basketball program. Coach Hopkins has got this team headed in the right direction. After last year's season, getting into the – college basketball tournament winning a game and seeing some of our guys go on and have some early success in the NBA. I got to highlight Matisse Thibel when it comes to that, where he's kind of blowing up the NBA with the way that he's playing defense, but they have a big test. Now older guys are going to have to step up and there is a new nucleus of really, really talented freshmen and one transfer that are going to have to gel together really quick. Jake, what's your take on this 2019, 2020 basketball roster yeah man like you said it's just littered with young guys you know you got Jaden mcdaniels coming from federal way freshman you got you got raekwon battle coming from marysville pilchuck just down the road from me saw him play last year dude is a freak of nature and you got isaiah stewart who's coming out of new york and this guy is a bona fide first round talent he you might enjoy him now because he might be gone after this year but you also have a bunch of other guys that are super, super young as well. You know, you got you got more young talent with Quad A Green, transfer from Kentucky. He's a sophomore. He's a guard, six foot. You got four young guys that are immediately looking for a lot of playing time, instant playing time. All four of these guys are going to be really, really good and really, really talented. But you still have the likes of uh, Nas Carter, you got Brian Penn Johnson, the seven-footer. He's a redshirt freshman. He's looking for time. You still got big, big Sam Timmons holding down the center of the, you know, the center of that two-three zone. He's a senior this year, but you know, you got a lot of depth in there. You got a lot of guys that have a lot of talent. It's just really young, inexperienced talent. I think one of the really cool things about this roster is you got some star potential with some of these freshmen and transfers that are coming in. Again, you mentioned Quade Green. Quade Green is a former five-star who's a, uh, a really tough-nosed guard who's uh, become more of a pass-first guy that can score. He can shoot the ball. But what makes this team looking like they could make some noise this year is the fact that they have – you mentioned Nas Carter – who's a guy who can light it up. I'm kind of looking at him in his junior year, kind of doing what maybe a, a, you think of, and I'm not sure maybe if you'd get to this point, but I think of Justin Holiday. I think of Brandon Roy. Yeah, that was I the think name of, I thought uh, of. Where Washington knows who this guy is and has seen his potential, but he hasn't shown the world how good he can be. And I could see him moving up the draft, uh, the draft boards, being 6'6", and having the bounce that he does, I think he could be really, really successful. Other glue guys that are those college tough guys that every really good program needs, you got to look at Jamal Bay, who's, uh, who can score a little bit, but is really a good defender, a, a big body as well at six foot six of 210 pounds. And then, of course, the guy that makes everything work without shooting the ball is Hamir Wright, 
He's six nine, but man, the guy can rebound all over the place. the The product out of New York has been a real pleasant surprise on the defensive side that I think that can make this Washington team pretty special this year. Yeah, and I almost wonder if Nas Carter, when you talk about him as far as a Brandon Roy or Justin Holiday type of player. I don't know if he's going to get the attention and the time with the ball that those guys had when they came to of age, because I think that there's so much young talent that's ready to play right now that came into this program highly touted and they're going to demand touches. I think that you're going to see a lot of spreading the ball around with this team. I, I, I'm really excited to see what Coach Hoff does with all this talent because last year, none of those guys were his guys. And he ended up winning with a bunch of guys that were kind of used to losing. So he instantly turned the culture around into a winning culture. Now he's getting a bunch of young guys in with a bunch of talent. What can he do with these guys? Can he grab those egos, get them into one room, and get them – the toolage that he can do to make them all a bunch of winners. And I think that's why Justin holiday is such a good comparison to what he, what, what Nas Carter can be is because Justin holiday was never the focal point of this offense at any time in his career, but you saw how efficient and as athletic as he is, he could definitely play at the next level if he's able to keep making the progression that he's on, which I don't see why he wouldn't. Um, He showed flashes of brilliance last year. I'm expecting to see that again. So we're kind of see where that goes. They start out with a big test, man. Uh, They got the armed forces classic. They get number 16 Baylor who's been in the last handful of years consistently in the top 25 that program has been rolling for a while and this looks like it could be one of the best Baylor teams that he's put on the floor when it comes to talent give me a prediction bud this game is really hard to predict because we know this Washington team and what they have in store for them and the potential that they've shown however playing a team that like Baylor who's been there on the big stage um i just feel like this game washington will have a hard time winning but i think it's going to be a great learning experience for these guys going forward so i'm gonna say uh washington loses this game i'm not sure if it's close or not jake what do you think i think washington loses as well but i say that it is close i think we lose by four awesome That's your teaser into Full Court Press, a Husky Hardwood podcast. You'll be seeing this a lot more as football season ends. We'll transition full-time into this one. Go dogs! Go dogs!